<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris. Welcome to the premiere episode of the Postmortem Podcast, where we'll have conversations with eminent filmmakers, writers, musicians, and other artists specializing in the horror genre. Horror is my life, for better or for worse. The first movie I remember seeing on television was Son of Kong. When I was a kid, before streaming, before DVRs, hell, even before VCRs, I would pour through the TV guide and circle all the genre films I could find. Back then, most of them were identified as melodramas, certainly not as horror. And I'd set the alarm for those pre-dawn hours when they'd show those disreputable things and try not to fall asleep through the four skulls of Jonathan Drake or something like that. When I was 12, I began writing short stories, mostly scary ones. And that same year, I got a movie camera for graduating junior high school, and I set about making horror movies. I guess it's in my blood. I've always felt that horror is to cinema what rock and roll is to music. Rude, disruptive, antagonistic, something you embrace when you're young that your parents could never love. But it got deeper for me. I found out that horror had depth and intelligence and humanity and more of it than in the more mainstream movies I'd been exposed to. I'm here to say that horror is good for you. It's a way to play tag with your fears without getting burned. At its worst, horror is just a bucket of blood thrown in your face. And there's always room for that bucket of blood. But at its best, horror is a metaphor. It's a look inside the psyche. It's a chance to wrestle with your fears. Not many of the people I know who work in the horror genre were popular as kids. Few of them were on the football team or elected king or queen of the prom. Most of them, like me, never even went to the prom. There's something about identifying with the other, the outsider, the loner. When I was young, my grandmother asked me, where's all that gruesome stuff going to get you? Well, all of that gruesome stuff has been my life's work. I've written, produced, and directed films and television in the horror genre, often being able to collaborate with some of my idols. I've written books and made music and also, beginning with an old interview show on the late lamented Z Channel in L.A. way back when, I've had conversations with some of the genre's most interesting creators. And that's what we're doing with Postmortem today. And we're going to kick off this podcast with somebody who's sort of horror's renaissance man, musician, writer, director, and man of many talents, Rob Zombie. Uh, Rob, what was your introduction to horror? Well, I think, I think it was King Kong. I can, that's the movie I can remember as far back in my life was uh, King Kong, because it was always on TV. And I remember when I was like in pre-kindergarten going to the local public library and they screened it down in the basement. And watching it. So I think that was the first thing I ever saw. Mine was Son of Kong. Actually, oh. <laughs> I remember very distinctly seeing it on television. I mean, it was a comedy. My mother had seen the original when she was a little girl, yeah. and it made her pee on her father's lap. <laughs> <laughs> and so she was protecting us and watching Son of Kong, and then it turns so out to funny. be this kind of mamby pamby little yeah. <laughs> family film. Yeah, that was, I remember because it was always like creature double feature was the big thing. And, you know, it was always like Kong, Son of Kong, or, you know, whatever. Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, whatever. What kind of kid were you? I was completely uninteresting in every possible <laughs> way. Uh, I was just, I don't know. I, I, I will never write an autobiography, but if I ever did, I have the title because it's what they wrote on my report card every single year. Has the ability, but will not apply himself. Uh, that's <laughs> that's a the story one. of my life. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I don't know. I was just like some dorky kid that liked, seemed to be out of step with everybody else. Like, everybody liked that, but I like that, you know. Well, it seems like fans of, of the genre and creators within the genre were outsiders. They weren't the popular kids in school. They weren't the yeah. school cheerleaders and the like. 
So um, did did you seek it out? I mean, was there still famous monsters around? And uh, yeah, I mean, every, everything was still around, but it was like you had to make an effort to find everything, you know. But it was like everything was there. I mean, it was a lot on TV because it was sort of. Late 60s horror boom, so there was a lot of, you know, Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, Munsters, Adam's Family was always on TV. There was always a lot of good horror movies and, you know, Vampirella and Eerie and Creepy and all those magazines magazines were still kicking around. So it seemed like there was a lot of stuff that there was a way to discover. Did you go to drive-ins as a kid? Yeah, we lived real close to a drive-in, so we were always at the drive-in. And then when I got a little bit older, me and my friends, we'd ride our bikes to the drive-in. And you had to cross this, like, swampy area to get in, so we would ride our bikes, put our bikes on our heads, wade through the swamp, and then sit by the speakers until, you know, because oh, we didn't have money to get in. So, but it would always be great. I still remember, like, I think one of the last double features was, like, Mother's Day and Texas Chainsaw Massacre before oh they shut God. the drive-in down. Yeah, so That's great. great. So you had a group of friends who were also fans of the genre, or it was very much kind of your own thing? No, I mean, I had, like, three three friends that were in and out of different things like one friend was more like the sci-fi guy and one friend was more like the guy who was into rock music but with all of them you kind of found someone who would be interested in what you're into what was the first direction you wanted to go in was it music or was it film or did you have a decision i had no direction i was completely directionless i never thought i would do any of the things that i do because making movies seem like yeah some special people in this place called hollywood do that and being in a band like the music that i liked at the time being like you know whatever led zeppelin queen the beatles are like well those guys are so super special they're from another planet can't do that um i don't know i I really didn't give it any thought i i could paint and draw so i scammed a scholarship to parsons school of design but really didn't even want to do that but i just wanted to move to new york and then i hated school so much that i got kicked out because my grades got yeah if you drop it below a certain level they kick you out and i quickly reached that level (laughs) and then i was just i remember it was around 1984 i was living in new jersey sharing an apartment this crappy apartment in a terrible neighborhood with a couple other people i'd gotten kicked out of school i was flat broke and i was just sitting on my bed thinking well you're a loser (laughs) you did it you're a complete loser and that's, you know, you just feel helpless. You're like, I'm a person with no actual skills, no money, no nothing. Now what? <laughs> and I don't know, somehow I got it together. And what was the first thing that happened? I mean, obviously your first success was in music with White Zombie before it became filmmaking. But then your work as a director doing the music videos for your own music was pretty striking and, and stylish. It was just like a weird, slow process. Like White Zombie was like the typical band. You start, you have no equipment, you steal equipment, your band's terrible, you change members every two minutes. And, you know, you just build your way up and somehow, hey, now we're playing CBGBs. Hey, you know, now five people show up. But once I kind of got into it, I become obsessive. So then it became the obsession to make that work. And then, you know, eventually that worked. And once we got signed to Geffen Records, I remember the very first video we shot, I didn't technically direct, but everything going on in the video and everything conceptually or what was happening was for me. So then I thought, like, I'm just standing here doing everything, but I'm never going to get any credit for this. So that's how next time I'm going to direct it. And that became the... So you actually, you had that feeling of, I can do this. Yeah. There was a door that opens where it wasn't this mystical, magical, impossible thing, but you were in the thick of it and you realized, I could do this. Basically, yeah, because once you get, same thing with music, like I'd go to CBGBs and see these sort of like punk rock bands and I'd be like, these guys suck. We could easily suck as much as they do. Why don't we have a band? You know, it's like it it, it sort of strips away the, the... the magic of it, you start realizing, oh, it's just sort of like work and you can figure it out and do it. So is that when you first started to think of yourself as a filmmaker or director? Well, I always, I mean, I always wanted to do that more than anything. I always wanted to make films. You know, when we were a kid, we'd make Super 8 films, whatnot. Did you do that as a kid? Yeah, for sure. And um, I remember, it's, it's very funny, actually, because when I was a kid... Was a kid, we were probably in high school, but we shot a sequel to Escape from New York, wow. which I thought was pretty funny. A zillion years later, showing Kurt Russell, hey, check me out dressed as Snake Plissken in this <laughs> stupid movie we made as kids. He's probably like, what an idiot. But um, so yeah, I always wanted to do it, but like again, it seemed impossible, and I couldn't go to New York film school or anywhere that I wanted to go. So it was just, yeah, once the videos started rolling, it started seeming more feasible. And I don't know how the journey to getting House of a Thousand Corpses made was a weird one that 
I don't really remember that well because it bounced around and started all these different ways. But somehow I was at Universal and the amount of money we were going to make it for seemed like nothing to them at the time. So they like said, okay. And I was like, really? I don't know what I'm doing. And you're not even paying attention. Good. And somehow it got made. It got made, but not under the auspices of Universal eventually when it came to release time, kind of yeah, controversially. That was, that was a big mess. I remember we had the preview screening out where wherever you do that at some Cineplex. And uh, Stacy Snyder, who was the... I don't, the boss, well, the boss at the time, I forget her yeah. exact title. She was at the screening. Head of production. Head yeah. of production. And I came out into the lobby afterwards because to me it felt like the crowd was into it. And I was like, all right. And I see these looks on their faces like, and all she said was, come to my office tomorrow. We have to talk. I was like, oh, that doesn't sound good <laughs> at all. And it was, you know, the next day was like, we can't release this. But it went to Lionsgate for a particular reason in the way you discussed it publicly uh, and Universal and their taste or lack thereof. Yeah, I mean, what happened was first it went from Universal to MGM. And me with my big mouth, I was on the set of Daredevil interviewing Ben Affleck and John Favreau for MTV. Weird things you do sometimes. <laughs> like completely not good at interviewing people. And... um I didn't realize, like, I was talking to them, and one of them asked me, oh, whatever happened to your movie? I go, oh, MGM picked it up, and I made some smart-ass comment, like, oh, I guess they, you know, MGM has no morals, they don't care. It wasn't on camera, it wasn't for the interview, but someone was, you know, oh, forgot the mic was on, and the next day, it's like in Variety, and I'm I'm going to the editing room, and the editor's like, "Uh, we're locked out. I'm like, what do you mean we're locked out? It was like, instantly, they were like, you know, go yourself and it was over how to make friends and influence people yeah i'm like god damn it me and my big mouth and then it became the long journey of i had this idea to buy the movie back but it was pretty expensive the the movie so i was like i can't afford that so it was a long journey of convincing universal how worthless the film is (laughs) nobody wants it. it you know we could cut it up and make guitar picks out of it it's just a worthless piece of crap and slowly the price kept coming down and down and down and down and down until i could afford to buy it and i bought it and sold it to lionsgate and lionsgate made it successful enough that yeah, you made it a, a sequel yeah it, was, it worked, turned out great i mean i lionsgate buying that movie changed everything now the devil's rejects had a different kind of approach there was a more broad kind of uh, bright colored uh, primary colors and and uh, a broadness to House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah. And then Devil's Rejects was a really serious, dark, very 70s gritty. Did you shoot that on 16? Yeah, I shoot on six. I shot House on 35. And when House was done, I think I was coming off music videos. And I was like, ah, this is too colorful. This is, I mean, I look at it now and sometimes you go back and look at something. It is what it is. And that's what people like about it. But at the time, you're always just beating yourself up and all you see is what's wrong with something. And I was like, that's not really what I wanted to do. So with House, I mean, with Rejects, by that point, I really invested a lot of time into like how I'm going to do this, who's going to work, how I was going to, you know, how to make it. And I realized that shooting Super 16 and blowing it up to 35 would give me the look I wanted more so because the 35 just looked so clean. It was so mm. sharp. And that's not really what I wanted. And, you know, it just became like anything else. You just learn. how It's it's like with music. You can hear it in your head, but you have to get your skills to the level where it can go from your head to the reality. And it was the same thing with making films. I can see what I want to do, but I couldn't make it happen yet until the second film. Well, going from writing songs to writing screenplays and, and full-length stories that you would adapt, I, I see a progression from House of a Thousand Corpses to Devil's Rejects where it's much more a writer's medium. That And, and tell me about the door that opened to you the difference between making film videos music videos that are all surreality and going into storytelling yeah exactly i mean like with reach i mean with the corpses i just remember being like you just don't know like it's really it was actually being on set the first day it's amazing like you knew what videos were and how to do that but that's just sort of disjointed imagery that somehow you can make work and uh, in a lot of ways that's what corpses is at certain times like there'll be chunks that are solid and then this sort of this disjointedness and then it kind of comes back together so yeah and so once i went through the process i mean i learned pretty fast how to do things so like once you kind of put yourself through the torture of it so yeah by the time i got to rejects i was like okay i have these characters this is the story i got to figure this out and you know and I spent a lot of time working on it we we had a a long pre-production period on that which was really nice i mean i've never never since have i had the experience of making a movie that i did with that one it's never been as good 
even when I've had bigger budgets on Halloween, it was never, it's always chaos. That was the best time I ever had. Well, the writing process, did you have a lot of input? Uh, House of a Thousand Corpses was for Universal, and studios are notorious for being involved in the creative process. They didn't really get involved in anything. It was really funny because I think we were just so below the radar. They Mm. just weren't paying, even though we shot on the back lot, Really? They just weren't paying attention. The, the executives never came down to see what we were doing. No one ever watched dailies. No one ever commented on anything, script. The, um, the only, which seems really ironic now, the only thing nobody was sold on was the casting of sort of like the normal kids. Hmm. And, our, and, you know, Rain Wilson being one of them and Chris Hardwick being the other one. And like, I kept having to bring them back. They're like, we don't know about those guys, you know, because they wanted like, you know, young, handsome guys. I kind of went a little quirkier. Turns time. out you made some very good choices <laughs> there. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's just, I swear to God, whoever they torture about casting the most is the person who will end up being the breakout star. Right. Always, you know, like, we don't know about that Walton Goggins. We don't know about that Rain <laughs> Wilson, you know, anyone else you can go to? Well, weird. casting is a big part of your filmmaking process. You seem to cast a lot of people who maybe haven't been in the public eye for a while but might have been in favorite films of yours. Is that kind of what you do? That's exactly what I do. I mean, I just like... There'll be somebody that I will have loved in something. It could have just been one movie, like Michael J. Pollard. I mean, I love him in a lot of things, but it was always just him and Bonnie and Clyde. It was just my favorite thing ever. So I was like, i got to get him in the movie. And that's kind of what I do there. It would be a Jeffrey Lewis, Michael J. Pollard, whoever. You know, just certain people that I've just always loved. I've always been a big character actor guy. Like, I'm always like, who's the guy standing behind Clint Eastwood? You know, he's the guy that I'm staring, you know, the sort of Bruce Derns of the world. And Sid Haig was always one of those people. I always thought Sid was so interesting in movies, but he never really got to do that much. Well, you revived his career, really. He had retired. He was working as a, a maintenance man in a building out in Simi Valley. Wow. And he said he had just quit acting. He was sick of playing, like, you know, thug number three in the background. He was, you know, and... Uh, he came in and, you know, we hit it off right away and he was perfect for it and it was, you know, great. Well, you started your film career as truly an auteur. You were writing and directing what you wanted to make. So along comes the opportunity to remake the iconic Halloween. Yeah. What's, what's the difference in the approach? They came to you as a director, writer-director for hire. In a way, yeah, it was different. First, I, I remember getting... I'd been having all these meetings around town, you know, you know, you know, everything's a meeting. And I was like, I'm done having meetings. I'm sick of not accomplishing anything except sitting in traffic all day. And there was one more meeting, like, you know, Bob Weinstein just called. He wants you to come over to the, wherever we were staying, the Beverly Hilton. He's blah, 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 blah. I go, oh, God. okay, this is the last meeting I'm ever having. <laughs> and I walk into his hotel room and he's, you know, he's, he's kind of a funny guy. And he was just like, Halloween, what do you think? Like, there was no setup to the meeting. I didn't even know why I was there. It was so funny. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's a great movie. I love it. Because I didn't even know he was, you know, he's no, 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 that's what I mean. They just wanted to do something with Halloween. Mm. They didn't bring me in to remake it. They didn't know what they wanted to do. Oh, they just wanted to make a Halloween they, movie. They owned Halloween. That was the all, that was as far as the input went. They They'd done all those sequels that yeah, up to like eight or something. Yeah, it was like, this could have been another sequel. This could have been... A movie called Halloween that didn't have Michael Myers in it. They didn't have. They didn't really care at that point. There was no sort of guidelines. And my first response was like, "No, I don't want to do this." I, you know, I just said no, and I said no, and I left. And then I went home and I watched Halloween again and thought about it. Sometimes with certain movies, you you know them so well that you you sort of imagine stuff in the movie that I'm like, wait, that scene's not really there. I'm just you know I'm putting it all in there, and um in my mind. And then I thought, well, you know what? If I could restart this, then I would do it. Because there have been so many sequels that have gone every which way. I was like, ah, you know, enough is Did enough. Did you watch them? No. I still haven't watched them all. Because, <laughs> I haven't seen them you know, then You know, it was, I liked John Carpenter's and everything after that. I remember liking Halloween 2 at the time. But really, it's the... It's just like, I just like Jaws. I don't care about Jaws 3D, you know. Right. Just, I, was the, <laughs> I was the publicist on Halloween 2. Oh, actually. Yeah, yeah, so it was way back. That's the one that was closest, I thought, to, like, you know, feeling like the original. Well, John and Deborah wrote that one. Yeah. yeah. And didn't he come in and direct he, some parts he did to some fix of, it? Yeah, he did some second unit stuff and yeah. a television version they shot some additional footage Oh, right, footage yeah. For, yeah. He did that for Halloween, too, didn't he? Yeah. Because I remember seeing it on TV. I'm like, I don't remember this scene. On What's NBC, this all, yeah. <laughs> What's this all about? Um, oh, so weird. So, yeah, um, I came in and pitched to my idea of what I was thinking and... They went for it. I mean, my original pitch they didn't go for, which I wish they kind of had because it's kind of what I did anyway, 
was to have the first movie to I pitched two movies because I go I know you're going to make a sequel I just know it's going to happen because this movie is going to be successful no matter what it is just because it's been so long and I was like why don't we make the first movie young Michael Myers up until he sort of goes into Smith's Grove and is crazy and that's the first movie and the second movie becomes more like classic Michael Myers you know out in the world and they didn't want to do that. So that's sometimes I watch my film. I'm like, this kind of seems like two movies that got truncated to one movie because mm. it's like halfway through. It's like another movie. And that's kind of what happened. But, you know, they, it, that was a crazy experience. Well, what about treading iconic ground? I know I went in not even thinking about doing The Shining. Yeah. You know, King had never liked the uh, Kubrick film. And the Kubrick film's a great Kubrick film. Totally. But it's not a great adaptation of the of the King yeah. novel, and I thought we were just going in and we were going to do the book that we loved so much, King and myself, and a lot of the world. And then you start walking into ground where you know it, it's an iconic film, and yeah. it's beloved, and you know uh, there's a lot of hate hurled at you when oh, you totally. start to tread that. Did you experience that? Yes, but I didn't even cross my mind. It was that's what's so weird because like if only like I always say if only Halloween had existed there was just the one movie I would have thought about it I would have said like oh my god this has just been the one movie 1978 you can't redo it but since there have been so many sequels that just seem so like eh, like you could tell no one really cared like Michael Myers looked terrible like the mask looked terrible it was like which stunt guys available let him be Michael Myers it just seemed like they didn't care anymore then I thought like okay then it's not didn't seem like sacrilegious. It didn't even cross my mind. And then, yeah, people started getting all bent out of shape about it. Yeah, same thing well, with The Shining. do? Yeah, and, <laughs> and with Psycho 4, you know, the 2 and 3 had happened. And right. particularly 3 was not well received by anyone. And thought, well, we're doing this small thing. And it's from the writer who did the original Psycho. And it's Tony Perkins and yeah. all of that. And you just think about the excitement of working in that playground. and. Yeah, I don't know if that's going away more and more because just everything's remade and everything's redone. But, you know, I just hadn't, it just really hadn't thought about it. I mean, but that's why I said no at first. It wasn't until I kind of thought like, oh, well, if I make it more about stuff that we didn't see, then it can kind of be my own movie. That's why with Halloween, too, I was like, okay. And I just went totally off the rails because I didn't want it to relate to anything that had come before. And you weren't going to do a sequel. No, I said no because after Halloween... I had, like, it was enough was enough, you know. I, I didn't want to get in the Michael Myers business. I was like, okay, I did one. It was sort of torturous getting it made. And that's when the whole T-Rex debacle happened, um, which was I had written this other script called T-Rex. And, and not about Mark Boland. <laughs> no, no, which would actually I'd probably be more interested in doing now. Um, and... We were going to do that, and Weinstein was supposed to put it on their schedule, but it was supposed to just say, Untitled Rob Zombie Project. And they put the titles. I'm like, oh, man, now i got to talk about it. Everybody's asking about it. We're supposed to just be like, whatever. And then it just didn't happen. Then we started getting into it, and they were like, ah, this is going to cost too much money. We don't want to do this, and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, great, now, but everyone thinks it's happening. And what really happened was I thought they had shot Halloween, too. I was at the Scream Awards, and I ran into this guy, Matt Stein, who was... I forget his exact title. He was part of the head, you know, it wasn't head of production, but he was something in there. And I was like, oh, how did it go with Halloween too? He goes, it never happened. And um, I go, where are you guys at? He's like, we're on the 10th script, the 7th director. Just, and I go, yeah, kind of what, <laughs> Good I, luck, kind yeah. Of what I figured. But, and it was exactly, and I, and I said, well, if you want, I'll do it. Because, you know, I just, by that point, the the hell of making the first one I had forgotten <laughs> and I, unfortunately, I had forgotten, which I would soon remember again. And I had sort of grown attached to like, hey, that's my Dr. Loomis. That's my Laurie Strode. That's Michael. I don't want, you know, I, even though I didn't create the characters originally, the, my versions I became, you know, kind of attached to. And that's how I went back in and back into hell and thought like, hey, the first one was successful. It's got to be easier to make a sequel for these guys. It was actually 10 times worse. Really? The worst thing you can do is try to follow up your success because... The funniest thing they kept, um, a funny story was, I remember when we finished editing Halloween and we showed it to them and I get a call from Bob Weinstein and his, his basic comment was, I hate everything about this movie. Everything. I was like, well, 
Okay, that's a pretty broad note. <laughs> no, <laughs> first thing you're going to do is fire that editor, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. Oh and, my god! And then, yeah, um, not not for the week working for that company. <laughs> not director friendly. Uh, no, yeah. you just got to be ready. I mean, you just got to get into screaming matches and be ready for that. Um, sen- it's not sensitive artist territory. <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, and then once the movie was successful, and we were shooting Halloween too, he came to the set, and he was like. Every single frame of the first movie is perfect. <laughs> I go, okay, same movie that every single frame was a piece of hey, shit dude. two years ago. Um, and he kept, he'd come in and he would show me the trailer to Hall- my Halloween and go, this is what we're looking for. I go, I know, Bob, I made that movie. I know it. I, as if I, it suddenly became this weird, psycho, bizarre world where he was treating me like I had nothing to do with my own first film. And I had to be explained how that movie was made. And it Make just, a movie like that one. Yeah, that was exactly like, I go, I know, that is my, and it just got crazier and crazier from there until by the end of shooting Halloween 2, I swear to God, everybody was like, you know, Tyler Maine was ready to take off his take his mask off, throw it in the mud, and go like, I'm done. Like, it was just, I mean, everyone gets along that worked on the movie, but it was just so stressful. Well, what about that interference by the non-creative people that you've had to deal with? I mean, you've, it's you've tricky. Made, made movies in various circumstances. One for a studio where they didn't interfere, then the Miramax crowd is is well known for being participatory, and you've done crowdfunding and done things completely on your own. Yeah, I mean, you try everything possible. I mean, I don't, it's, you know, I don't mind input. I don't mind people being involved because, you know, people are giving you millions of dollars. You can't say, hey, give me your money, go for yourself. That's just <laughs> insane. But it, it becomes sometimes just... Sometimes when it just becomes interference for the sake of interference, we want to go, look, if you think every single decision I'm going to make is wrong for the next two years, then just fire me now and we'll just <laughs> save ourselves some hell. And um, especially when it's just logistical things sometimes and you're like, well, if you just give us one more day of shooting, we're not going to have to come back in six weeks and it's going to cost 25 times more. Nope. And six weeks later, you're mm-hmm. back reassembling everything and you just spent, you know, Three million dollars to shoot the thing that would have cost a hundred grand when you said it, but that stuff just becomes cuckoo. Um, hey, it's the business. You know better right. than you know as well as I do. This business makes no sense at any moment, <laughs> and it's a miracle any movie ever gets made and <laughs> gets made well. Yeah, yeah, if the movie, yeah, that's what I would say. If the movie's good, that's just a weird bonus that happened by accident. It's just getting it. At this point, I just look whatever it takes to get the movie made. I don't care. If we have to kidnap your grandmother and hold her for hostage in the trunk of the car to get it made, then that's what we're doing, you know, whatever it takes. Well, let's go back to your art roots. You said you went to Parsons in New York. I know there's one here in Pasadena mm-hmm. as well. Um, were you a painter? Were you sculpting? Were you making m- m- media? I was painting. I got a scholarship for painting. And then as soon as I got to school and started getting into classes, the teachers were such douchebags that I was like, I hate painting. I hate you. I hate art. I hate painting. I'm just going to go out every single night to clubs and (laughs) never come to school. (laughs) And it just made me hate everything, you know, because it's like, I'm not good with rules. And when someone's like, wow, this is that, and this is that, and critique, and we're talking, and we, I'd be in class, but like, can't we just draw? Do we have to sit here all day just Discussing theory of what everyone just did when I know this kid just drew this in the lobby five minutes ago and I got to hear him talk for two hours about what he I know it's all bullshit it's like that remember see that art school confidential that movie yes that's exactly what it is and I can't stand it so it was not for me I don't deal in that stuff I like things to, I'm just I like to deal in reality do you paint now yes I finally after forever decades of not caring now I, I do again yeah and so what what kind of media do you I mean I just I don't even show anybody. I just I have a studio in Connecticut where we live sometimes and just have these huge paintings that I do all the time and they're just sitting there. And that just gives you pleasure. Yeah, I mean maybe someday I'll have a show, but I don't even want to turn it into that because as soon as I turn it into that, it's not just something I do for fun. It's like, okay, we gotta make these deadlines, we gotta get it there and yada yada. Does anyone like it or not like it? And, uh, you know. Yeah, have you seen Clive Barker have you been to Clive Barker's place, seen no, his paintings? But I've seen his work, but I haven't He's seen that in person. Amazing. Yeah. Really amazing. And it's amazing how many people within the horror genre do that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it just I don't know. I guess it just starts from that. I guess it's the easiest thing you can do, like when you're a kid. You know, like, 
here's a piece of paper, here's a pencil, and yeah. we're off. Whereas, I mean, that's how I started. You know, I, it's weird how many things we have in common. Yeah. I was in a band in my youth, a prog rock band <laughs> in the 70s. And, uh, you know, uh, so many of the same things that we grew up on, even though uh, we're uh, several years apart. But um, one of the least known things that you did is one of my favorite things you did is an animated film. Oh, yeah. The Legend of El Superbisto. Yeah, that got lost in the shuffle, sort of. But it's really funny. It's really profane. And it's beautifully animated. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's old school animation, right? Yeah, it really... That, I started working on that while I was editing The Devil's Rejects. And because I had done these comic books and I took the, I thought, oh, I'll do them as comics and then I can pitch this as a pitch it to get made once I have the comics. And that was a funny one because I went to film Roman who at the time were doing the Simpsons and they said, yes. So we start working on it. And that, that took many years to get finished. It's a very expensive film too. I cannot believe, again, it was almost like the universal thing. We're so under the radar that no one's paying. What are those guys in those last couple offices been doing for the last <laughs> three years, racking up those bills? And when it was done, by that point, uh, the company had been sold like four times. Went to like this company to that company. IDT, and, who did IDT, Masters right? of Horror. Oh yeah. yeah, and then it ended up at Stars. And by the time we were yeah. done, and Stars looked at it, they're like, "What are we gonna do with this?" <laughs> X-rated smut fest. So yeah, it's just so kinda, it was your Fritz the Cat, basically. Basically, yeah. And we just sat there, and every day we'd come up with something ridiculous, and a whole group of super talented guys would. What was great, we could get great artists, guys who usually do Disney stuff, because they're like, "Yeah, we'll come in and draw, you know, giants all day long." We don't get to do that <laughs> at Disney. And uh, yeah, it just became nuts. Tell me about the process of directing animation. I actually did. I know you have done animation voices, and I actually got my SAG card doing Pink Panther cartoon oh, voices. <laughs> um, but the process of directing animation seems completely bewildering to me. Well, it was. I wasn't going to direct it at first. I had hired. I was just going to produce it because I was like, I don't know how to do this. And then I had hired someone else to do it, and the project was just kept getting derailed because it. He just, for some reason, didn't want to do anything I wanted it to be. And it kept turning into something else. So eventually I fired that guy. And I was just like, okay, I'm just going to take it over. Now that I kind of see how it goes down. you know, And I would deal directly with the people working there and the artists. And we'd create the animatics. And we'd edit the animatics. And, you know, again, through necessity, I had to figure out how to do it and learn how to do it. But I didn't at first. But you know, so what you? But you wrote the script. Yeah, I wrote the script with this comedian Tom Papa. Oh who, right, who right. plays he's great? Yeah, and he plays El Superbisto. So I thought oh, it would be really funny if he's the voice. And um, at that point, we were just friends, and I was trying to think who could be in this. And it was actually my wife Sherry's. Like, why don't you ask Tom? You know, he's funny. He could do it. And and then once he became the voice, I was like, oh, we should just write it together because it'll be funnier. And and that and you get sometimes you get bored just always working by yourself. You know, right. and it's kind of a drag. So we had a you know we had a blast and he kind of helped kick it along because it had kind of gotten stuck for a while because it was I don't know sometimes these things just drag out for so long that it's good to get someone new in who's ex, you know as excited as you were two years ago. So help. did you start with did you design the characters yourself? Did you paint them? Did you create well, them? Well, I basically all the characters were from the comic. So I had worked with artists for the comic and so all the characters existed and then we'd bring in different artists and they'd do their interpretations of, you know, taking them from more comic book form where they're a little more realistic into the kind of goofy or cute animation style. And then would you, you would record all the dialogue first and then yeah. you would animate to the dialogue. Right, we'd bring in the actors and we got great people. We got everyone from Taurus Satana to Paul Giamatti in the movie. And that was what was kind of cool because we were going to add in all these people and I went, well, why don't we just get the actual people? Like this one second of, you know, her character from Fast and Pussycat. I'm like, why don't we just have her do it? And she was excited to do it. And, you know. And For those who are listening who don't know, Tara right. Satana was uh, the star of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Yeah, and she was great. And, you know, you know Cassandra, who plays Elvira, came in and played one of the women. And Dee Wallace. And I was just calling up everybody, Jeffrey Lewis. And sometimes people come in, they didn't get it. Like Jeffrey Lewis is like, this is so stupid. What is this? <laughs> this is because I didn't have any art to go by. Right. And he's supposed to be playing like he's at the end. He plays like a boring elevator operator. And he's like, what is this, Rob? This is so stupid. Like, because <laughs> Jeffrey was a trip, man. And um, he just always liked to remind me that he was 70 years old and he could still beat me up. Because he would always, he had just come in from boxing. Because <laughs> oh he was God. like, you know, was... An eccentric. Tell he was a tough guy. Um, but an awesome guy. And um, 
yeah, so it was just like a crazy thing. And we would just think of stuff all the time. I'd go, what would be funny if we just suddenly made this section look like Schoolhouse Rock? And then we would just do it. It's because great. nobody was paying attention, so we could do anything. They'll just have Nazis for no reason. Okay. <laughs> and unfortunately, nobody paid attention when it came out. It didn't get a release. It needed to be seen on the screen. Yeah, because the subject matter and everything, when it was done, Stars was like, eh, we don't want to deal with this. And it just kind of disappeared. But again, I looked at it like it exists you know, the yeah. challenge is getting it made because if you had to go in and really try to do that through the proper channels, it would have never happened. It was only through that sort of that process of changing hands and people coming and going, could you slide that through the radar? So I figure someday, you know, we'll bring it back as a TV show or something. You and, know. you know, that's the thing, too. It's a crapshoot. You don't know what's going to be successful and what's not. No. And there's no predicting that. I mean, usually people make, studios make movies that are similar to successful movies they've done before because they, they feel yeah. they can do it that way. And yet it's the ones that are the most different that seem to break through. But I've had things that were completely unsuccessful. And, um, you know, uh, they may have been the closest to my heart, but at least I made the damn thing. Yeah, that's all yeah. that matters to me because it's funny how, like, people are like, I get this idea, I get this idea. It doesn't matter. Ideas mean nothing. It has to exist. And that's why I just want it to exist because it all sort of becomes a level playing field after a while. Yeah, there's the big opening weekend or the big this and that. But once it all ends up on Netflix or wherever, it kind of all seems the same. It's just <laughs> there and you can watch it. Because most movies that I love, my favorite movies, I didn't see them during their theatrical release because it happened 40 years before I was born. You know, it just exists. And a lot of movies that you think were big hits weren't big hits. They were completely forgotten and whatever. It doesn't matter. Let's talk a little bit about your influences because you seem to uh, give tribute to them in your films. Uh, you know, in Lords of Salem, there's, there's Ken Russell tribute to Altered States that I thought was really notable. And Devil's Rejects and, and House of a Thousand Corpses, Toby Hooper, John Carpenter. I mean, I never really, I never think of it as paying tribute to something. It's just these are... The things that you were exposed to and that you were influenced by. You know what I mean? Like, um, the other day I was watching Sugarland Express <sighs> and I was like, I love the way this movie looks, you know. But I'm not like, if I sort of do that on the next movie, I'm not thinking, I'm paying tribute to Sugarland Express. Right, it's, it's just, like, just something that's a lot. Yeah, you just see, oh, I love the way the, the camera moves in that movie or something or the, the way it's lit. And it's kind of this, the same thing, at, you know, because sometimes people go, I can tell that's exactly that. And I go, I don't even know what you're referring to. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I didn't even never even seen that movie. I don't know what piece of art you're talking about. But so it's, it's a true influence. Yeah, it's, it's not just something you're recycling. No, right? never. I mean, because, you know, you, you know, like anyone, you watch so many thousands of movies and read books. And th sometimes you don't even know where it came from or if you saw something you know that's why you just don't know especially that's why it's funny when something will be like something else that you've never seen before it just happens you know it's like sometimes you rip off a song that you've never heard you don't even know you know it just happens so let's talk a little bit about the difference of making a studio film or or even uh the miramax it's not a studio but it's next best thing to that or worst <laughs> Um, but 31, your most recent movie, was made completely independently, even involving some um, crowdfunding. Tell me about that process. Well, in a funny way, it's not that different because at no point have I had to do something I didn't want to do. It's just when you're working for studios, you sort of have to fight harder to get what you want done. But I, at no point will I acquiesce to anything. Nothing. I will just walk off set and go home and go, I don't want to make movies. Because I will, I just can't. It's not in me with anything. I, I've never given into anything. Didn't matter when we were on Geffen Records and they, anything. I just would rather not do it. I, didn't, I never get into any business to be told what to do. You know, if they're my successes, it's because of me. And if they're my failures, it's because of me. But I never want to sit there going like, why did I do that? Mm -hmm. you know, why did I cast that person? Why did I listen to them about that ending or this or that? Because I found out real early that usually, say for House of a Thousand Corpses, the biggest note I got is there's one scene in that movie where there's a really long the crane out shot that's quiet for about a minute. It's almost the only thing anyone remembers about that movie and it's the one thing they're like you have to take that out of the movie and I'm like see whatever they focus on is probably the only thing that's good in the movie so I just you know I, I just it's just not in me so with the crowdfunding the crowdfunding 
didn't really crowdfund the movie. It crowdfunded a small portion. And I would never do that again because it's such a fiasco. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you're bringing your fans in, which is super cool, and you're trying to make it great. And we had this company called Fanback that went out of business before we even finished. And everybody who was supposed to fulfill all the things to get the things to people or so, they don't give a shit. So then you're scrambling to try to make everything right. And after a point, you're like, this was a mess. I never do this again. But, um, I mean, I think the biggest thing is, you know, when we had the studios, we just had more money. Right. But then again, sometimes I feel like, okay, when, with 31, we had the least money ever, but somehow we got to spend it better than when we had twice as much as a studio, and you can see that half of it's being wasted anyway. So it kind of balances out sometimes, like, you know, because this, especially with the Halloween movies, had so much above the line cost that never went on the screens. I'm like, you may say this movie cost $14 million, but we really made it for six, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or something like that. And what about the process of consuming movies, watching movies these days? I mean, the platforms are so different. A movie doesn't often, rarely gets to the, to the theatrical release these days. Yeah, and I used to really care about that. Um, now I don't. And because I realized that the only way to have the freedom is to not worry about it. Say with Lords of Salem, the Anchor Bay was like, let's not go theatrical. Let's not go, you know, it'll be so much better. We'll, we'll make money from the first dollar, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, it has to be theatrical. I couldn't get my head around the idea of not being theatrical. So we went out on 600 screens, with screens, which sounds like a lot, but it's basically like no one knows the movie exists on six, you know, unless you're on 4,000 people don't know the movie exists. So what happened was, you know, you take this little movie, you add all this extra cost, and you instantly turn it into something that'll never see a profit. Whereas 31, we basically went, what did we do? We went like, you know, ultra VOD and then we went digital and then we went DVD and we did all this stuff. And like, they call me up after one day, they're like, want to do a sequel? Like the thing's like instantly profitable. Whereas everything else, you know, I'm still being told like, it doesn't matter that Halloween made a hundred million dollars. They're still like, well, we're still, I haven't made a seat of profit off this yet and you never right. will. So right. it's, you know, the business is so fucked up. But you're one of the owners now in, in, in something as independent as 31. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I just want to make movies, you know, because that's all I care about. Because the opening weekends and all that, I mean, it sounds like a cop-out, but they come and go so fast that it's like, even if you have a blockbuster, it seems like it's, used to be like the blockbuster was like, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark's been playing at our local theater for eight solid months. Now yeah. it's like, even if it's the number one movie in four weeks, it's gone. Gone. You know? Yeah. It, and and so I don't even care. And then with Halloween, it's like, I got to have a number one movie. I got to have my big opening weekend. And whatever, I didn't care. It didn't mean anything to me. I thought it would be this meaningful thing, but it, it, it was just like, oh, okay. Do you think of yourself more as a filmmaker than as a musician these days? I just kind of think of myself as a guy who comes up with weird ideas and wants to get them made. And, and makes them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's real. Because, you know, that's kind of what I do. I just sit there and go, oh, that would be cool. Hmm. How do we do that? Are you inspired by places? I mean, Lords of Salem. I went to Salem several times the first time to research writing Hocus Pocus. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I, I discovered that it's this amazing place where they celebrate Halloween for 12 days every year. And it yeah. climaxes with the, the candlelight procession to, to uh, Gallows Hill. And it was incredible. Is that, did you have that experience that prompted you to make that movie? In a way. I mean, I didn't, never did any of that stuff, but I grew up in Massachusetts, and I remember as a little kid going to Salem and going to the Salem Witch Museum and seeing the reenactment of the witch trials and just stuff like that kind of sticks with you. And I was like, I remembered it as being really cool, but I hadn't been back there since I was a little kid. And then when I went there to location, Scott, I was like, wow, this place is great, you know. But nobody wanted to give us permission to do anything. Which was funny because, you know, we weren't historically accurate, of course, not even close, just making up <laughs> right. weird shit. Even but, dates. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, um, you know, the Salem witch trials are interesting, but when you really research it, they're not that interesting. They just hung people and, you know. And press them with rocks. Yeah, I just wanted, I wanted, they didn't have any cool, tour, you know, the European witch hunts is where they really get down <laughs> yeah, to some business. Yeah, the burning was European. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. and the, yeah, the, the crazy chairs and the iron masks and stuff. So, you know, like the Salem Witch Museum and all the kind of key places wouldn't let us do anything. In fact, most of the stuff we shot was we just ran out on the street, shot stuff, and was like, quick, everybody back in the van. So it was almost like second unit. Yeah, we were just running around stealing shots everywhere we could go. 
So what was your best filmmaking experience? It was easily Devil's Rejects because that was the one where it just, everything fell into place. It felt like we had enough time and enough money and enough everything. You know, we had a long pre-production where we could feel like when you get to the first day of shooting, we're ready. Had a long editing period. I remember editing it until um, one day me and the editor were like, we're done. I can't think of literally one frame I want to change. Whereas Halloween, the pre-production was truncated. The editing thing was like, was they just because it was that, that situation where they just set a release date. Mm-hmm. We need it then. And you're like, we're not done. We don't care. And it wasn't like we were being super precious. It's just so we didn't have enough time. You know, when, and it was, just seemed so weird because we had so much more money. And, and Halloween, too, was even worse. And now, but now I'm just used to it. Like 31, our pre-production was like two weeks. Wow. You know, by that point, you're like, as opposed to it used to be like two months at least. Editing was nothing. And, you know, shooting 20 days. You're just crazy running around. Everybody you know, giving you one crack at this. You better know your lines. And then we're moving on. So was Halloween 2 your, your least enjoyable experience? Well, parts of it were awesome. I mean, I loved what we were doing and I loved the people I was working with. But the... The, the situation we were doing it under, I've kind of blocked it out, <laughs> but it was horrible at the time. There was so much fucked up stuff going on. Well, at one point I quit because we were, we were location scouting, getting ready to start. And somehow I found out, somebody let it slip, that they were writing a separate script behind my back that they thought they were going to force me to do. Oh, that's a good idea. Meanwhile, we're location scouting for the script we have. So in a sense, everybody's just running around Atlanta around wasting their time so i was like i'm done i went back to the hotel booked a plane ticket i'm like out of here and then they you know they convinced me to come back and then right before we're supposed to start shooting i don't remember what our schedule was exactly but they go you have to cut two weeks out of the schedule i'm like we start tomorrow (laughs) i'm like okay because they were trying to get, and so the, you know, the line producer was like, you have to cut all these scenes. And I was like, we're not cutting anything. So I was like shooting like 12 to 15 pages a day. I'm like, oh I'm my getting, because if I cut them, it doesn't make sense. Like right. you can't suddenly do a Roger Corman and go, tear out half the screen. Attack of the crab monsters, go. <laughs> you know, it just, it, well, the movie wasn't going to make any sense. And even at times, I remember on weekends just sitting there going like, crap, we had to cut this and that. It doesn't make sense. How does Dr. Loomis get from here to there? How does that person know about this from that? Like, you know, that's the stuff that executives don't think about sometimes. They just make these sweeping changes or want, and they don't realize that it doesn't make sense. It's a domino effect. Yeah, it is a huge domino effect that ended up, as usual, costing more money and causing more problems than if we could have just done it. But, um, Whatever these are the this is what making movies is. I mean, I, people always people think it's going to be some precious thing, and I go, it's not. It's trying to figure out how to get the techno crane out of the mud it just fell into. That's what making movies is about. <laughs> not realizing that it's going to rain every single day that you're in Atlanta for thirty straight days. Did you have experiences <laughs> where you had to move inside or change the concept of what the scene was because of weather? Um, no, we just plowed through. The, the weirdest one we had was there was a freak snowstorm in the middle of shooting Halloween, too. So we woke up. We were in, I, was in, I remember I was in the production office. Um, I think I was with Howard Hessman or something <laughs> and came out. And I was like, oh, my God, there's like a foot of snow on the ground because there were no windows. And... <laughs> And like, okay, so tomorrow all the exteriors are now snow. <laughs> you are under snow. For one day. So we were out there melting the snow with heaters, trying to frame up. Like, if you just move the camera an inch, you would see snow. Ouch. And, you know, but that's, you know. But you, that's you, movie making. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. It's not about, why didn't you? <laughs> People are always like, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? I'm like, why didn't I do that? Because that actor's insane and you can't remember his lines. But once you're on set and it starts happening, you just kind of go with it. What you get on film is the magic and everything around, oh. everything outside of the frame that you don't see, you don't think about. Thank goodness, because yeah. outside that frame, madness reigns. Yeah, it it's is chaos. insanity. I mean, it's real, you know, crazy, but whatever. It's our job to make it seem like it all is easy. I've been sitting here complaining for 45 minutes, I guess. Now we're having fun. (laughs) We're doing what everybody wishes they could be doing in terms of making movies and stuff. But it is funny. It is all that stuff that's what I love about it, too. Yeah. Because every time you start a movie, it's you just feel like, here we go again. 
But you're also challenging your creativity. Every move, you know, often because of budget and, and, and schedule and the like, you have to think of how can I do this better? Yeah, you have to, like, every, every movie. I remember on Lords of Salem, um, that was the first movie I ever shot with such... That was like 21 days, and it was like the lowest budget I ever had, and I didn't know how to do it. So I'd get into trouble, and I'd be like, oh, crap, crap. You know, we're so far behind schedule. They'd be like, okay, this next thing, it's one shot. You know, I'd compose one shot. you got to get it in one take, and then we'd move on. And then you'd go, wow, that's like one of the most interesting shots in the whole movie <laughs> because you had to creatively get yourself out of the hole. And that's why I think sometimes these big blockbusters are terrible because they try to solve everything with money. Just build a bigger set or just shoot it on a green screen and we'll figure it out later. And sometimes having to be crafty, you know, it's the classic, the shark doesn't work story that I'm not going to tell. But, that's, right. you know, it's right. like sometimes you have to, you, you make better things because you have to be crafty. My favorite movies are not the ones that cost $200 million. They're yeah. the ones that have been made by filmmaking artists. Yeah, know? I mean, you know, most of the time, and I, you know, a lot of my crew works on those movies because they're talented and they'll come they'll tell me these stories and, I, and my, my jaw will just drop that sometimes they're like they'll just they'll build this massive set to shoot someone talking on a phone for a two minute scene yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they built this entire I'm like oh my god but some of the stories are so great especially the effects guys that yeah, they tell yeah. I'm sure you've heard them all too <laughs> well who are the filmmakers that you would that you would go out of your way to see their work I mean, let's see. Past, present. I mean, it, it's all over the place. I mean, I think some of the, the, the people, the films that were most influential to me was when it was like all the Scorsese's early stuff, like Mean Streets or Taxi Driver and things like that, which is, you know, you watch them thousands of times until you just sit there with your eyes closed and recite the whole movie. He was the first guy who directed a script of mine on Amazing Stories. Oh, <laughs> how cool is that? <laughs> it was like, I'm squirting. Yeah, yeah that's so. funny. Yeah, I know. Or like even like um, Spielberg. Like just going as, like as a kid seeing something like Close Encounters and then watching it now and going, oh my God, this movie is just so incredible. But not even for the reasons you think. I just love this stuff with like Richard Dreyfuss and Terry Garr and just the way he creates that realistic family chaos that exists that you just, it feels like there's just something that he knew so well that I would just be blown away by. And the movies were just so smart and so well made. And then to put like Francois Truffaut in there for the, I mean, mm -hmm. just so great. Um, so things like that were really influential. I mean, early on watching any, like, you know, James Whale type stuff. But I don't, wasn't even conscious of that as a kid. But going back, I'd be like, oh, it's funny how he was, uh, did all the ones I liked the best or something. Right. But, but it was really those guys. And Kubrick, you know, just first time you see, like, something like Clockwork Orange, just oh. like... I remember just sitting there like, what did I just watch? This is like not even a movie. It doesn't even feel like a movie. The people who make something that is not like everything else, yeah. those are the things that are striking. Who do you read? I don't like get, you know, these days I mostly always read biographies for some weird reason. Because I can't focus enough to sit down and read. Like, you know, <laughs> like right now I'm reading Bruce Springsteen, Born to Run. I hear it's great. It's so great. I mean, I tell you, what, I don't know how... He can remember. I mean, not only is he, I mean, he's a great writer. The book is in incredibly written. It's not like your usual biography. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is so bad. It's so incredibly written and so incredibly detailed. He must have the best memory of anybody because he remembers the most obscure shit from Soul. I, I can't even remember this interview as it's happening as well as he remembers his first gig in Asbury Park or something. It's, wow. Yeah, this is incredible. But yeah, it's amazing. But it's so funny because you can relate to so much of it. How, like, basically everything that he became famous for, everybody would... You know, it's just funny how, like, as soon as he played him the first... His, our new song, Born to Run, they're like, yeah, the vocals aren't loud enough. Like, mm -hmm. it's just a complaint. You know, he just wrote, like, one of the greatest songs ever. It's nothing <laughs> but a complaint. <laughs> so, as far as music goes, you're a musician. When you're scoring your films, often there are favorite songs of yours or music from yeah. an era that you like. As a musician, how do you choose your composers that you work with, and how closely do you work with them? Really close. I mean, that was tricky at first. Um, my first movie I, I did myself with the, the producer that I was always working with. And then I, would, I did a couple movies with Tyler Bates. And then um, the last couple movies I've been just doing with my guitar player, John. And it's just so much easier because what I always want to do is find simple themes because that's why I always think that John Carpenter music is so brilliant because people go in and I mean 
I just think of all the movies you watch and all the scores, and you can never remember any of them. They're so f- forgettable. Yeah. I mean, that's why Carpenter and John Williams, these people are so brilliant. You come away and you're like humming the theme to their movies like it's a hit song on the radio. So that's why I like working with guys from my band because they think more like that, like finding a simple melody that you can just repeat and not trying to make this grand statement that kind Mm. of just crushes the scene. So, yeah, that's how we do it. So much film music tells you how to feel rather than just abetting the scene that you're making. Right, yeah. And, and, And it's amazing what you can do sometimes like, oh, let's just, you know, three, you know, hit three notes on the piano and suddenly like you have this amazing thing going. Well, just one more thing, and then we're, uh, we'll wrap it up and then come back for, with some questions, that, a sure. couple of questions that we were sent. Um, but let's talk about veganism. You are a vegan. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a vegan. There are uh, several filmmakers within the genre, and it seems unlikely that this bloody genre would yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Don Coscarelli of the Fantastic I know, movies. right? And his daughter has that amazing restaurant. Amazing. Chloe, yeah. And um, uh, Adam Rifkin, Axel Carolyn. Uh, what brought you to it? Um, it first started when I was like 17 or 18, wow. I think. Um, I had seen this movie. I, th- I always get the title wrong. I think it's called The Animal Story. And it's narrated by Julie Christie. Mm. And I didn't know how, you know, I'm just like a dopey kid, like anybody. Oh, eat at McDonald's, eat this or that. You don't even think, like. And I saw this movie, and it just, like, it just blows your mind. You just change the way you think about everything. And from that point on, I was like, I can't do this anymore. You know? And that was, it was as simple as that. So it's since you were 17 years old. Yeah. Like, hardcore vegan, that's came later because even then you didn't I didn't I thought like oh well was what's Dairy wrong with, is fine yeah. what's wrong with eggs or something you know like you know, yeah. it's always a discovery process about how things are done and what's going on but now you know it's just, the information's so out there it's not like you don't have to find some weird VHS tape at the video <laughs> store to try to figure things out well, I really appreciate you uh, launching the show with us. This oh, is our first awesome. Time. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute with some questions from our listeners. Now, more Postmortem with Mick Garris. Okay, we're back with Rob Zombie. And before we sign off on uh, Postmortem, uh, we got a question from Jake who says, what is your take on Blumhouse and the micro-budget horror wave they've ushered in? Is it good for the genre? Does it help or hurt? I think it kind of does both at the same time. I think the micro-budget thing is fine depending upon the movie. Like if you're making a found footage movie with all unknown actors and there's really no sets or no art direction or no anything more or less, fine. But the problem I've run into is that now everybody thinks every movie can be made for that budget. So now they want you to do everything at the lowest possible price and it just doesn't work. You can't make everything for every, you know, every... If you're going to shoot something that looks like it was shot on a security camera, yes. But if you want to try to do something more elaborate than that with name actors of any sort, you can't do it. So, Because every five seconds, everybody and everybody thinks they can be Blumhouse. So every day you get a call like, oh, I know this guy. He wants to make low-budget movie and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. You know, you can't make everything for no money. So I find it's done both it's been great and horrible <laughs> yeah it gets it gets the genre out to the audience yeah. but even the blumhouse model has changed a lot they used to be 2.7 million dollar movies and now they're 10 and 12 and, and yeah and i don't think they were ever made for as low of i know they weren't made for the price that they were saying sometimes so other people get the wrong impression and they forget about post-production and other factors that come into it and yada 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 Okay, Ian asks, when you originally wrote House of a Thousand Corpses, did you ever think that there would be a future for the characters of Captain Spaulding, Otis Driftwood, and Baby Firefly? Did you always plan on continuing their story? No, I never thought about it. I mean, I, you know, it's like anything, like we're saying, you never know what people are going to like. You know, you just kind of make it and hope it works out, and you just don't know which characters people like or not like i mean you know because the captain spaulding character is not even in house for thousand corpses that much right and then he sort of became breakout character so you know he popped up more in the second one and became a more integral part and yeah no you don't know 
Great. Well, thanks so much for helping christen the first episode of Pork Sure. Smart. Hopefully it's not the last episode because of me. <laughs> uh, no, it'll, it'll be even more popular now. Right anyway, on. thanks again, and thanks to everyone for listening to Postmortem, and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.